Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hello, and welcome to another session on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is John McAdams, and I'll be your co-host for this session. I'm very happy to be here today with Trime Persinger. Welcome, Trime. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, thank you so much for being part of our summit. I've been looking forward to speaking with you for the summit for some time. I'm going to start by reading from your bio uh, to familiarize our audience with you and your work, and then we'll just jump into the conversation. Does that sound good? Sounds fine. Okay. Trime has practiced meditation for 35 years and has been a prison chaplain in Oregon for 15 years. She leads a meditation group inside the prison that meets weekly, and she has coordinated three week-long meditation intensives. For the past two years, she has recorded weekly mindfulness videos that are broadcast to inmates on a prison TV channel. These videos are also available online for staff viewing. In 2010, Trime developed The Art of Communication, a mindfulness-based course that teaches inmates skills for building relationships and resolving conflicts. Prior to the COVID pandemic, this course was offered in seven Oregon prisons. Okay, again, thanks for joining us, and let's just, let's just start. Um, you've been working in prisons, as we just said, about 15 years. I'm just going to ask you, how has mindfulness helped you? Oregon has one of the better prison systems in the country. It's still a prison. And there are, there's a level of stress working inside a prison uh, that mindfulness practice, it helps me to stay centered. It helps me to come back into my body, into my present experience as I navigate my world. Uh, and I don't consider myself to be a calm person, but I so somehow have a calming effect. I, I don't, you know, it's, it has to be the mindfulness practice. Uh, you know, people tell me that, um, they appreciate the stability that I bring and the cheerfulness. And that comes from um, repeatedly coming back into the present moment and showing up, showing up. Uh, someone once said that um, our job is to show up with heart. And in a prison, that's very helpful for myself and for the people around me. Trima, can you give us a little, um, just kind of a little scenario, help us to visualize how you are working. Now, you and I have spoken about a couple of different ways that you have been working um, with the Oregon Department of Corrections. So for this weekly uh, meditation class that you've been doing in person, when you've been able to do it in person, can you let us know, you know, what does that actually look like? How long is it? How do people set up? What are they sitting on? Like, how, how do you make that work? When I first started working at the prison, there was a very uh, proactive administrator, and he uh, authorized the purchase of 
Zabutans and Gomdans. I'm a member of the Shambhala Buddhist community, and so we have the setup uh, that that the Shambhala centers follow. We have uh, we use the chapel, the main room in the prison, the main religious room in the prison, which is quite large, and we have storage cabinets were made, and we keep the cushions in there, plus shrine supplies. We have a shrine, and we set it up and take it down every time we meet. We meet on Sundays for two hours. I have a setup crew that comes in ahead of time and sets everything up. And then at the end of the two hours, we take 10 minutes to take everything down and put it away. So it's a it's a travel, it's equivalent of a traveling shrine room because everything goes away at the end. The, so what we do in those two hours? We have some opening remarks. I give announcements and um, if an, a, a, in Oregon, inmates are called adults in custody and we abbreviate that to AIC. If an AIC ha, at the, in anywhere in the prison has passed away in the preceding week, then I'll make an announcement about that and we memorialize that AIC. Anyone who knew that person will speak. Um, talk about upcoming events or uh, right now we're preparing to uh, do a class for people who are wanting to take refuge and that's an ongoing saga of getting permission to stream a video off the internet uh, which I update them on every week. So the announcements and then um, we don't have a post meditation hall so we shift gears not by moving locations, but I just kind of take, I said, let's get started. And I sit up straight and the room, people settle. And then I stand, I take off my microphone. I stand up and I have chupins. A chupin will come up and help me light the shrine. And we have a drum that was built early on by the Native American group inside the prison and so we do the opening chants and we uh at AIC request we've included the heart sutra in our opening chants so we do drum and then um the Shambhala Buddhist opening chants plus the heart sutra and then we practice for a while if there's anybody new in the room which there often is and I will at that point um, be replaced on the Umze cushion, the leader cushion, by one of my trained AICs uh, and take the new person across the hall to my office and give meditation instruction. And then we come back. And so we have sitting and walking. And and then uh, either we'll do uh, an hour, hour and 20 minutes of that. More often, we have some kind of a teaching. Uh, occasionally, I give a talk. Mostly, we do video teachings. So right now we are showing um, different um, lessons from the Science of Meditation series that was done at Shambhala Mountain Center several years ago. Uh, so we're, we show that. Um, and uh, or we'll do a Pema Chodron sequence or a Sakyam Mipam sequence or, you know, something. Or just a video, random video. And then we do the closing chants. Sometimes there are discussions, and I've actually increasingly been doing discussions, dyad and triad discussions, because those are really helpful, especially post-COVID when people don't really know each other anymore, and we've had some new people come. And so the dyad and triad discussions have been much appreciated, and so I've started doing them more. 
uh, creating time for that. So when I, I did a Ninton last Sunday, and a Ninton being just meditation, but I cut it short so there could be 20 minutes of discussion with two and three. I'd given a contemplation and they discussed the contemplation. Then we gather together in the group and we do closing chants and then we'd have takedown. And the takedown is also a time for socializing. Right. Wow. Okay. So this is, uh, <clears throat> I actually was, was lucky enough, honored to, to be at one of these gatherings four years ago, four or five years ago with you. And um, it was incredibly impressive. The, the swiftness and the sort of the ease and conviviality of the setup, um, the program, the way it ran, and then the, the teardown. And it was, uh, it was really pleasant for me to be there. It was really pleasant. Um, uh, you gave us a very clear understanding of what, you know, that aspect of your work is. So for our audience, what, what has drawn you in there? I mean, this is, you know, what actually brought you into and made you go through whatever steps and hoops you needed to, to become, um, a, you know, a member of this industry or, or however you want to look at it. You're a professional chaplain in a State Department of Corrections. This is a career choice. So can you t tell us what drew you into that? I got lucky. <laughs> I, I happened to have the qualifications. I did not set out to be a chaplain. It was my degrees are in mathematics and business administration. So it was nothing to do with theology. I, I have put a lot of time and effort uh, into studying Buddhism and practicing Buddhism and done that for a, had done that for a long time prior to getting this job. I was actually exploring opportunities in restorative justice at the time. And I had been making, I was looking for work. I was out of work and I was in Oregon and I was making phone calls, uh, get any kind of a job, but on the side, I was, jobs in restorative justice are impossible to get, very rare. But I, I just kept poking at that topic. And one thing led to another, and I ended up in a conversation with the administrator of religious services and to talk about restorative justice. And in that conversation, he said, well, I don't have anything in restorative justice for you, but could you be a chaplain? And it was just a life-changing moment. And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I'll find out. Asked him what the requirements were and discovered that I could patched together the requirements and applied when the, because the, there were at the time there were a number of openings, chaplain openings. And I, they, I applied and was interviewed and was successful in getting a job as a chaplain. And I, it, it, it was like a gift. It felt like a gift. I, I could never imagine a job that was better suited, that I'm better suited for. And that was a more uh, rewarding career for me than being a prison chaplain. It's just been a marvelous 15 years. Yeah. I'm really grateful. So there was no strategy involved. It was, it was, you know, doing, following my passion, getting an education and continue, you know, putting a lot of effort into my Buddhist practice and, and um, community, and then just being in the right place at the right time. Okay, well, uh, 
from my understanding and experience, Buddhism is a path of transformation. And, and so wh what would you say? How do you see the transformation, the growth that you have experienced from when you stepped in as a chaplain to, to now, these 15 years? Oh, my gosh. In prison, you have to walk the walk. There's like in I've discovered in my Buddhist practice, there's nowhere to hide, but we still find places to hide. We do. Our egos are tricky, and there's nowhere to hide in prison. You're up against uh, bureaucracy. You're up against um, a very structured environment that where there's a lot of power issues, and buttons get pushed, and uh, I encounter situations that can be frightening, not that often, but uh, they're there. And then the, the whole prison environment is challenging. And so to lean in, I, there's, I, I have no illusions about my own hangups or, you know, Fewer than I had at the beginning. You get you get to see yourself in Technicolor. Your buttons get pushed, and and you you just there's nowhere to hide. You gotta kind of take a step back and really look at what's going on, and look at your my relationships with AICs and with other staff, and uh, apply endlessly the lessons that I've learned in my Buddhist path, just endlessly. It's a very uh, we talk about the path of the transformative path, the path of Buddhism. It's very much a path working in a prison. And I have learned so much in the 15 years, just from just by paying attention, just by not ducking and being humiliated and being learning and being humiliated again and learning and uh, mistakes and successes and mistakes and successes and just leaning into all of it and uh, learning about love. It's a great place to learn about love, accurate love, love that isn't squeamish and isn't indulgent, but how to love well. It's a wonderful place to learn about how to love well, hands-on. Hmm. Wow, thank you. Um, so in terms of transformation or path or growth, <clears throat> the folks that you're working with, I also want to talk a little bit about just the language of adults, adults in custody, many different, uh, facilities, incarcerated environments, uh, adults in custody are referred to in so many different ways. And, uh, when I <clears throat> first encountered the term adults in custody, um, it sounded to me very respectful and very just accurate. This change in terminology, tell us about that, because that happened during your tenure. And can you just talk a little bit about how, how you've seen it affect uh, maybe the administration, the frontline COs, the, the adults in custody themselves, and yourself? There's a different feeling about adult in custody, and we always abbreviate it to EIC. Uh, than there is about the word inmate. I think it's a subtle difference. I don't think it's 
it's part of the Oregon way, this effort uh, by senior management to humanize the prison environment and to um, and to and to humanize the AICs in the eyes of staff uh, and and to create a more pro-social um, world, as is said over and over, most AICs release from prison. And we try to, we do our best to have healthier people released from prison than when they came in. So that's part of that, um, part of that philosophy. Okay, so then along those lines, in terms of the work that you're doing with, with <clears throat> adults in custody and the meditation that you're guiding them in, training them in, the mindfulness that they're doing, their own personal work, um, so that's that's sort of the, the next interest for me is how are you seeing that growth, um, like personally, individually, and your part in it? Leading the meditation group, being a stable, caring reference point is really important. And um, for eight and a half, my first eight and a half years as a chaplain, I was the chaplain for special housing, which is the segregation units. And I, my prison is the largest prison in Oregon. And we have, well, right now, seven housing units that are in the um, isolation. So special housing, known in the vernacular as the whole or solitary confinement? Yeah, yeah. And so I would walk the tier down there every week uh, for eight and a half years and have amazing conversations with individuals. I think, I think there's the there's that group element of my work, and and people are just the AICs are immensely grateful to have a place where they can go that's safe, that is, and the ones who are drawn to a Buddhist path. They're just really grateful for that and the fact that I show up. And some of them do <laughs> amazing work on the cushion in the group context, and then they take it back to their cells, and it, you know, it helps them to reorient their lives. Other, and then some of those I see individually as well, as well. It's only on their request. I only see people individually when they request it. And then, as I said, for eight and a half years, I walked the tier in special housing and I would have individual conversations with people cell side. And if they wanted it, I would give them meditation instruction. We would talk about meditation practice and I'd answer questions. When I was doing it, I used to print some kind of a meditation related article. And I would hand it out to anybody who was interested when I went. Um, I used to have every week, I would have usually five or six or even more conversations with folks that any meditation instructor would salivate over. They, they were so deep and so impressive how these guys were starting to work with their minds and to... Um, to really come to terms with their lives. It was extraordinary. Having had a <clears throat> fairly challenging life myself and having worked with my own demons, I, I started this job when I was in my 50s and um, 
and had covered a lot of territory by then. So I think when I connect with them, uh, there's a sense of a shared understanding or like uh, there's not a, I bring to the work a sense that these are fellow travelers and I've done work and I've got some wisdom that I can share from my own journey. And, and just walking the tear down there in general, just showing up with a smile. Uh, it was so, at the time, people could be down there for a long time, sometimes more than a year. Now they're down there less because of this change in the whole prison culture actually around the country. But at the time, I would see the same person every week sometimes for, for more than a year, sometimes two years or more. Um, and just being, a, again, a steady, reliable presence showing up every week and taking an interest in them. It's remarkable what a simple thing like that, how much that can help people. Knowing that somebody cares. And I'm sure in your prison work you've discovered the same thing. It just, it's just, it doesn't take much. Showing up. Showing up. Yep, showing up with heart, with a smile. Mm -hmm. And and really, really showing up. You know, here's a fellow, and sometimes people can present. They look mean, or they look nasty, or they, they look scary. And I have learned very early on to just not give that much mind. I always look into their eyes, and I have various techniques for seeing the human being on the other side of that. And sometimes you just smile at someone and they're looking fierce and scary and you smile at them and you, everything changes. They smile back and it's like, oh, there he is. I work in a male prison. So most of them are men. We, you know, we have some transgender AICs who are in the male prison that mm -hmm. we've adjusted mm -hmm. in our language. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, well, thank you. That was um, that's quite vivid. And this was your work pre-pandemic, pre-COVID. I did that until the fall of 2015. Oh, okay. So, yeah, way pre-pandemic. Yeah. And then, so then what, what shifted from 2015 up to pandemic? Um. I was told I had to give up special housing because I'd been there. Um, I'd been down there so long that, that I was told by prison administration that I needed a break. I needed to not do it anymore. And I was really unhappy about that. And I protested and I protested loudly. And uh, in the meantime, along the way, I had developed this training program that you mentioned in my bio uh, called the art of communication and uh the short story my boss who was not in in this system my boss is in a statewide he supervises all the chaplains across the state um i had complained loudly and forcefully to him that i did not want to give up special housing uh, but he was in a difficult position because the prison administration wanted me to having been down there for so long most staff uh, have to rotate out of special housing after two years. I was only down there a few hours a week, so I didn't think that that should apply to me, but anyway, they did. So he <laughs> discovered 
uh, a carrot that would draw me away from special housing, and that was to take my art of communication program statewide. So when he made me that offer, I said, okay, I'll give up special housing. <laughs> so, so I did. Right. So tell us about that. Tell us about that program. Uh, before I was a prison chaplain, I, uh, in the late 90s, I did uh, training in conflict resolution. And uh, I did it at the Justice Institute of British Columbia in New Westminster. And it changed my life. It, um, it was an extraordinary program. And, um, and I, had, I had developed training programs in it subsequently because it was just, it really landed for me. Uh, when I became a prison chaplain, one of the chapel clerks, in prison people have jobs. And we have like eight AICs who work for us as chapel clerks. And so one of the chapel clerks, I was, you know, and, and you develop, you get to know these people. So I told him what I had done. And he said, oh, can you teach us? That sounds good. Can you teach us? And I, and it, I said, no, um, I was a new chaplain at the time. And but three and a half years after I, would, I figured out, you know, I had felt some degree of comfort and familiarity with my chaplain chaplaincy and so I he kept asking so I developed I adapted my material to a prison environment and developed put on the first art of communication class in December of 2010 and people signed up and and they would many of them said more than once this won't work in here this won't work in here and I said maybe you might be right I said but you won't know until you try and so some of them tried it, and who knew that it worked? These skills work in prison. They work with other AICs. They work with family. They work with staff. And uh, it's simple listening skills and speaking skills. Uh, and anyway, the I and after the very first class, I recruited AIC co-facilitators, so people who'd really embraced the the material. And we're really trying to use it in their own lives. And so from that point forward, anybody who said this won't work in here, there was a very credible person standing in front of them who said, yeah, it does. Get over yourself. So, <laughs> so uh, moving forward, I've always had an AIC co-facilitator helping me present the material. That was ongoing up till, what, 2020, early 2020? Yeah. Yeah, the beginning of the, the lockdown due to the pandemic interrupted it. We were seven classes into the 10-week course. Hmm. So you were kind of a traveling show because you, you went across I, the street. I trained facilitators uh, in Salem on two different occasions. Uh, and I, I, I traveled to two other prisons to actually teach classes, prisons that are you know just a few hours away, um, several sessions at one of them. and one or two sessions at the other but then i trained facilitators who then delivered the material when i was invited to take the the program statewide i developed a facilitator guide i'd been working on it over the years but i developed a facilitator guide that just it's very specific it says do this then do this then do this and it references the workbook um and so i'd written a workbook from the very beginning and so it evolved it's it was fine-tuned over several years and then the facilitator guide and it's now a very complete and i think uh, it, it's a package and people can just having been trained they can teach from the facilitator guide in a 
very straightforward manner. I had a conversation last week with the facilitator who's a counselor at another institution and and uh, it's she's very successful at teaching it there. Great, great. Okay, so that is up and running. COVID hits, the virus does its thing. And what do you do? Art of communication was suspended. Uh, and because they were they were meeting in groups. These were yeah, meeting in groups. And, yeah. 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 And AICs, at least in Oregon, don't have access to the internet. There's no possibility. I mean, they can do video visits with family, but there's we don't have the ability to do any kind of a um, Zoom meeting or anything with um, with AICs. So, and of course, at the beginning, we thought it was going to be over soon. Remember those days? <laughs> so we kept waiting for things to open up again, and then they didn't. And finally, um, I started recording a Buddhist service uh, to just going through the motions of our normal Buddhist service with a shrine and gong and opening chants and giving I always gave a talk I didn't do videos I, I would always give a Buddhist talk and after doing a few of and then they would be shown on our internal AIC channel um, uh, on Sunday mornings when we had the Buddhist service and after doing that for a month or two it was suggested that I do since I was all set up to record anyway why not do a video on just mindfulness secular mindfulness so uh, that sounded like a good idea. And I remember talking to a camera for the first time and the second time and the third time and the 10th time was really weird. Just like, it just felt so weird to talk to a camera and have nobody live on the other side. But I got over it. I mean, we do, don't we? We've gotten used to all kinds of things that are surprising. So now I'm really comfortable talking to a camera. Uh, and I've continued since we, we, we reactivated, we're having the Buddhist service again, but I've continued. And these mindfulness videos are shown on the same channel, but they're shown the same. I record one video a week and it's shown, uh, it's looped. So it just, it, it's looped from seven till eight every morning. Um, the new talk starts on Sunday and then runs through the following Saturday. So from 7 to 8, it'll be the same talk for a week. And then on Sunday, I change, change the uh, reel. <laughs> so, and it's, it's run by AICs um, from a central location, along with the rest of our programming on Channel 53. How long are these presentations? Uh, 24 minutes to 30, something in there. Yeah. And do you do guided practices or silent practice? Or? It's I give a little talk. I uh, and I've <laughs> so I talk about something that is real in my own life that at that moment. I record usually on Monday mornings. And I talk about something that's real for me. I don't give out the specifics of my situation. It is not a YouTube video. This is going out to AICs. Uh, and it, it would be completely inappropriate for me to share the specifics of my story. And then it's also going out to staff. But I talk about something that is real for me in that moment. And I talk in, and sometimes I cry. <laughs> sometimes I cry when I'm talking to the camera if, I'm, if it's a very emotional subject. And actually, I recently sent a video with me crying to the person who 
sends them out to the state, to staff in the state. And I said, if you think this is inappropriate, I'll send you another one. She said, oh, no, it's great. <laughs> so, so they like it. So topics that, you know, I'm big one for me is gentleness. It, it was huge for me to learn to be gentle with myself. And, of course, it's an ongoing thing. But I, I bring gentleness into almost everything. But I've talked about mm-hmm. stress reduction, gentleness, disappointment, fresh start, sense of humor, letting go. Never give up, boredom, getting real, courage, practice every day, not special, sadness, dropping resistance to things as they are, feeling slash loneliness. So I've got, you know, two pages of this. <laughs> so I just, I talk about something, as I said, that is real. And of course, it's, in many cases, it's the same message, just in different packages. And people, the AICs eat it up. That you know, I get told many times how much people appreciate it. They'll watch it every day as a way to start their day. And, and of course, now when I walk down the corridor, I think, you know, oh, there's the movie star. <laughs> so, um, but it's it's. I know that that is. It's not just the people. In fact, I think the people who come to the Buddhist service. I'm not even sure they watch it, but it's everybody, you know, it's not everybody else, but other people find it really, really helpful. And it's completely secular. I make no Buddhist references at all. I have uh, on occasion done Tonglen practice because it fit. And I thought I've just experimented, you know, I've, I've grown in my confidence over the almost two years I've been doing this. I'm on video number, just recorded number 93. Um, And, um, and so now I, I take, you know, I, I ventured where, because I didn't want to introduce any Buddhism at all, but it just fits and it worked. Um, and I wanted to talk about that practice as it felt relevant in that moment. I very much do this based on inspiration of the moment. So, well, Ren, the, the sending and taking practice, the compassion practice. That's right. The compassion practice. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think I'm hearing the makings of a TikTok star here is what I'm hearing. <laughs> it can happen. happen after I retire. <laughs> okay, well, that'll give you something to do. <laughs> yeah, if TikTok's still going in, yeah. in three months. Yeah. yeah. Right. <clears throat> so, um, what, what do you see for, for, for yourself and for this position, um, we just touched very briefly on the Oregon Way and that there is some amount of movement, transition, shifting, or at least an intent to humanize, um, to humanize the people who are there in custody. Uh, what do you see as opportunities, uh, potential shift and change and growth? That have happened or that could happen? No, that could happen here in the future, could, from, from going forward from here. I, I would like to just back up a moment and say humanize the people who are in custody. It, I think I would be more comfortable with the wording humanizing our view of them. They're already human. Okay. The humanizing is the how we view them, which helps to evoke their humanity. So it's not something we're doing to them, it's something we're doing to ourselves. Mm-hmm. that is helping them to find their own humanity. Uh, there's a, a big emphasis on staff wellness, uh, correctional staff um, 
have um, health issues uh, and mortality issues, correctional career, especially to be a correctional officer is a, um, you have to be really careful if you're in that career to take care of yourself and to balance your life because it's, it's, um, it's just very stressful um, because the, the prison environment is, I don't experience, uh, I think there's an undertone of stress. I don't experience, I don't, I'm not responsible if there's a fight or if, if issues happen. Um, correctional staff are. And so there's a sense of a lot of boredom, a lot of repetitive activity, cell searching, you know, running line movement, running child line with sudden um, requirement to be on, on, on and dealing with uh, a dangerous situation. And that, um, so mindfulness practice for, has been introduced for staff as well as a way to calibrate, as a way to manage that. Um, and that's part. So staff wellness is huge, really uh, encouraging people to attend to any health issues that they have, their weight, their lifestyle, uh, diet, uh, introducing mindfulness practice. Um, uh, and that's definitely part of the organ way. And then when people are healthier and stronger in their own being, then there's a sense that it's less of a stretch to see the AICs as human as well. And so there's this whole humanizing is for all of us. We're, you know, we're all working with challenges and we're all, I think, working at dropping the barriers that we put up guarding ourselves against the world. And in prison, you have to be able to draw on it. You have to be able to create a barrier and deal with emergencies. They don't happen as often as one would think. And in the meantime, you there's a, it works better if it's just a more relaxed environment, if people are, are connected and happy. Staff. Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question? Well, uh, are you seeing this as something that is gaining traction that you see yes. is starting to help to mold or reshape the culture? Yes, I would say overall, yes, uh, especially the senior management. And it's been uh, pushed repeatedly for years now. And I think they've got that mindset in mind when they hire new staff. Um, we don't, it's, it's said that people come to prison as punishment. They come to prison because they've broken a law and they, that's the, the um, judicial determination of their punishment. But they don't come to prison for punishment. Being in prison is punishment itself enough. They don't need further dehumanization when they're in prison. Now, if they cause problems, they've got to be dealt with. I mean, clearly. And at the same time, if they don't cause problems, and even if they do cause problems, they're still human beings. And we have a remarkable example of an AIC who's been in segregation for years and years and years because he has been so violent 
and so disruptive and he's powerful. He's pulled a stool out of a concrete floor and done all kinds of things that are beyond offensive. Um, uh, and uh, they've been working with this man uh, using the principles of the Oregon Way to the point where he's been out of his cell and restrained. They took him to a gym, played basketball with him, staff. They never do this with other AICs when other AICs are around. And there's a lot of staff, a lot of very well-trained staff who are with him because he's done some really awful things. Um, and I saw a video of this guy. And I, when I was in touring special housing, I knew him well. And he was unreasonable and he was loud and he was offensive and he was demanding and um, as I knew him, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. That made me weep to see the, them working with this guy and really treating him like a human being and maintaining safeguards, always maintaining safeguards, and speaking to his humanity. I'm going to cry right now when I think about it. I'm just, it's just such a joy to be part of a system that's oriented that way. Well, this makes me um, want, want to ask you about and for uh, people in our audience who who maybe haven't spent time uh, working in prison and they are interested in entering those environments. And what sort of um, what sort of advice or essential pieces of information? So you talked about safety, right? And and we know that safety is is a, a really a high key um, interest and need. Uh, and that that's what the administration is there for. That's one aspect. Of that's the first priority. That's always the first priority. Safety. That's the first priority. If anything is unsafe, then it trumps everything else. Mm -hmm. Right. And then we have, you know, kind of the rest of it, which depending on the institution and the administration and the state that you're in, there's, there's the potential for, um, you know, for uh, growth of the individual, right? Of the yeah. of the incarcerated individual, and from what you're saying, the COs as well. Um, so, just kind of uh, 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 th that as a context. If you ran into somebody at a party and they said, "Wow, that's so cool! I've really been thinking about this for the last four or five years that I want to volunteer in a prison." Um, what would you feel is essential for them to understand? I think of it in terms of hard and soft. Especially delivering human-centered services in a prison, like most volunteers want to do. One has to maintain a kind of human emotional availability and, and humanity and appreciating the individuals you're working with, the AICs or inmates, depending on where you are, and to know that you can be conned, that you have to follow the rules. You have to maintain boundaries and follow the rules. You can't do favors for AICs. We say what you do for one, you have to do for all. So somebody hands you a letter and says, can you mail this to my mother? No, the answer is no. Uh, because then that AIC has, has gotten you to do something that you weren't supposed
supposed to do. And then they'll ask for more, you know, they can ask for more favors. And I mean, there are books about this. And then they can compromise you and then they can have you bringing in contraband because they can report you and then you'll lose, you know, what I, you know, it just, it's this spiral that you can get caught in. So maintaining one's humanity and seeing the people that you're serving as human beings and recognizing the environment, recognizing that we can be manipulated. So following the rules. And I have been blessed. I supervise a number of volunteers and I have been blessed with really great volunteers and I train them. And they know that if anything happens that they that arouses their suspicion in any way. If anybody asks them to do something they're not supposed to do, they come to me. So it's not like you have as a volunteer in a prison, you don't have to be the arbiter. You have a supervisor. Oh, I'm I'm guessing this is true anywhere. There's a somebody who supervises you, who's a reference point, who you can go to and say, look, he asked me to do this, is this okay? Or, you know, we want to do this, is this okay? Um, and uh, so to be aware of this, this dance, you know, the razor's edge, it's a Buddhist image, the razor's edge of not too tight, not too loose, not too hard, not too soft, to just walk that every day, every time you go in. And that's true for me as a staff member too. So there, there are some pitfalls, and there's there are some learning curves. Yes, as I said, you know, I've <laughs> in some cases learned the hard way. Um, never enough, of course, to have a seriously bad consequence. But I've had some definitely some learning moments. Yeah. In my case, actually, usually I'm too tight. <laughs> Sometimes I've been too loose. Well, I think it's, uh, I don't think it's uncommon for the compassionate heart to start to kind of win over and blur the boundaries. I mean, the particular jail system I work in, we have a very clear contract that I sign. And it's very clear. It's like if I breach that contract, I'm just a volunteer. I'm out. They've got thousands of volunteers. I'm, I'm just gone. The blacklist drops down and, you know, so for self-preservation, uh, you know, yeah. yeah, and also it's actually also most of the time for the AIC's benefit. Yeah, we live in a very permissive society, and there's a lot of people in prison who've not had good boundaries around them. You know, parents who were gone or who were very you know agreeable and would do anything the kid wanted, um, or no parents at all or whatever. So actually. I would say overall, the setting of boundaries is for everybody's benefit. Mm -hmm. And and anybody who's anybody in AIC who's inclined to try to manipulate you, like I love one of the benefits of leading a Buddhist service is that people can't talk. So if they go to the religious program in order to meet up with their friends and talk to them, in most services, there's singing, there's talking, there's, you know, it's a it's a kind of a social experience in, in mindfulness practice. If they come there to talk, I don't allow it. And if they keep talking to each other, whispering, I separate them. And, and then, you know, the next step is, yeah, you, you can't be here. You know, bye. Mm -hmm. And I take them off the call out. So mm -hmm. I, it's really easy to maintain 
um, the, I want people in my service who really want to be there for the right reason, not so that they can meet up with their friends and do their do their business. Mm-hmm. Which in prison, in my prison, it's very large. There are different complexes. People come to the Buddhist service from all the different complexes, so it can be used as a way to meet up with people they wouldn't otherwise see. Um, and so I say that's fine. We have 10 minutes of social time at the end. You can do it then. Um, in fact, I found somebody doing some business. He came in and he talked to somebody and then he turned around and left. And so that was when I, I, I said, no, this isn't going to work. So this is when I had a very large group. I had like 50 people, 60 people on the call out. So I shifted and we started, instead of having social time at the beginning, when people arrived, we were all sitting. So they had to come in and just into like coming right into the meditation room and they had to sit down and that, you know, so people self-select for the Buddhist service, which is fine with me. I don't want anybody there who's not there because they want to learn about Buddhism or meditation. We're going to, we're going to wrap up soon, but one of the questions that comes to mind as you spoke a little bit about, obviously about, uh, um, a number of people who find themselves just as involved, chaotic upbringings, chaotic childhoods, and the accumulation of trauma, and the accumulation, potentially the accumulation of a great deal of trauma. Yes. And, you know, there's a lot of talk uh, in terms of mindfulness and secular mindfulness and or Buddhist practice and the potential to um, trigger traumatic uh, reactions or responses and or how to you know guide people and train people in a trauma uh, informed way and so I just would like to ask you in your work and in your life uh, what what have you found uh, in terms of triggers have you seen folks get triggered or and how how are you working in general around trauma informed approaches I don't see it in the room don't um so again it's not too tight not too loose i and if people tell me that that they can't do it then they can't do it and i invite them to um i mean i will meet with them individually and if things get triggered individually then is this the teaching to be gentle with oneself has helped me and to allow room for whatever's happening in their in their experience to be there and to provide a safe space for them to be triggered and to work you know to if they if they can't stay there they don't have to stay there you know but to help them to kind of one thing that's been important for me in my work as a chaplain is to empower people and to help them to move away from seeing themselves as a victim which when people first discover their traumatic response, of course, they're going to remember their victimization. And it's a natural and necessary part of their journey. For them to stay there doesn't help them. So there's a sense of owning, you know, one's experience and claiming it. And then working with where to from here. 
So I'm not trained in trauma. I mean, I've read books and so on. I think there's a lot of intuition in how I work with people. I try to meet them where they are. I've not had disruptions in my service from people having trauma triggers as they practice mindfulness. I think that some people have chosen not to come back because it was too much for them. Just, just, just there for folks, offering what I know and what I've learned and try to meet them where they are and offer whatever help I can. Well, I think that's wonderfully helpful to hear from you as an experienced professional. Uh, there, there can be um, a potential for folks who don't have this level of experience um, to, you know, to be very cautious, maybe overly cautious with the potential to um, tr trigger traumatic responses and to, um, you know, and to be very shy about presenting mindfulness. And so I, I think hearing from you to trust in one's intuition. To yes, very much. Lead, to lead with gentleness. Um, and if anything happens, you've got security staff available. You know, if anybody starts to get really out of control, you've got people mm -hmm. who are trained to address that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. It's it's a remarkably safe environment, especially. And I tell you what, AICs are beyond grateful for volunteers coming in. I'm sure you've experienced that. I mean, they're grateful for me. I'm staff. I'm coming in. I'm getting paid to be there. So they all know that. Volunteers come in on their own time. And they all know that. And they are so grateful for people who volunteer their time to come in. Um, and I, I'm not, I've never been concerned about that. And it's never been an issue for me about having someone act out. And I'll tell you, if there was ever an act of aggression against me, it would be one person and the other people in the room would make sure they never got to know. Well, you've had a wonderful career. And I know that you have mentioned to me just in our preamble that some, there may be a big shift and change for you in the next little while. Um, so we, of course, wish you all the best. And uh, it'll be a while. It's a year and a half. Yeah. Okay. Something coming. That's great. Now, the art of communication, is there, is there any way folks can learn about um, the workbook or learn about the program itself? Are there ways for people to... Connect? It's proprietary right now. It's in the Oregon Department of Corrections. Um, I don't know if you're going to put contact information, but... Um, uh, they could write to me, you know, I don't, I can't, I developed it actually on my own time, but because I've developed it from my prison work it, and, and it's now offered within the DOC, I don't know what's going on. I mean, I had great dreams for it. I was going to, you know, change the world and COVID hit and it just really, so I'm going to do another staff facilitator training next spring. It's on the, in the works. It lost a lot of steam with COVID and I have yet to see at this point in my career, how much, but there is this one woman teaching at, at another institution who's passionate about it. And maybe she can pick up the reins and take it somewhere. I don't know. But in terms of, um, I don't know, I'm happy to answer general questions about it and I can send the overview of it in terms of the actual material. Um, I don't know. 
Well, that's interesting. I wonder if if there was uh, another staff member in another State Department of Corrections who might be interested in contact me implementing sure. it. Yeah. Con- contact me for sure. And I'm, I'm guessing the Oregon Department of Corrections would be willing to share it. That would be exciting for me. That would that would really light my fire. Even a volunteer who yeah. wanted to teach it in another state. You know. Right. Well, yes, if it can spread into other, you know, other institutions, other cultures. Yeah, that would be amazing. That, that, would, that would be amazing. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Trime, for taking your time. And thank you so much for all of your amazing work there in Oregon. It's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed this. Yeah. Thank you, John. Good. Well, take good care. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.